good morning. And it is a beautiful Easter morning. I was just talking with someone a minute ago about how beautiful it was yesterday. And today also looks like a beautiful day. I mentioned that I had a seminary professor that used to say, uh, end his prayers by saying, uh, Lord, until you bring us into that eternal spring. An eternal spring, beautiful, beautiful uh, imagery of heaven and everlasting life. Let's read from Mark's gospel, starting in the 16th chapter, uh, the first 18 verses for our um, text for Easter morning here. Hear the word of God. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him, and very early on, The first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were very afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, He appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept, but when they heard that he was alive and had had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, He appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. A lot of unbelief going on here. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe." In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if any drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for this, your holy word, this story of the first Easter and the impact it had on those who saw the risen Jesus. May our own hearts this morning be convicted and convinced by its power and truth, and may it transform us And have, Lord, a radical effect on our lives, minds, and hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, in mathematics, there's something called chaos theory. Maybe you've heard of it. It is a theory that focuses on the behavior of dynamical systems that are highly sensitive to initial conditions, which means that Everything that happens has a reaction which can sort of spiral and have a huge effect in the future. It's sort of the idea that something that starts out small can affect so many different things that it has detrimental 
consequences. There's another word for this. It's called the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect is the idea that something small, like the act of a butterfly flapping its wings, creating just a little bit of air, can tip the scales of possibly a weather pattern, a weather pattern and causing even a huge storm cycle. It's a small example uh, of the chaos theory, but it's more focused. In culture, the butterfly effect can happen when a minor change in circumstances can cause a large outcome. For example, the Vietnam War is said to have been caused by a rejected letter. In 1919, Woodrow Wilson received a letter from a young man named Ho Chi Minh, who asked to meet him to discuss Vietnam's independence from France. At the time, Ho Chi Minh was quite open to Western ideas and democracy, but Wilson ignored the letter, which angered the young Ho Chi Minh. He went on to study Marxism, and he also met Trotsky and Stalin in Russia and became a staunch communist. Later, Vietnam did win independence from France, but the country was split, and as the North Vietnamese invaded the South, America entered the conflict, and 10 years of war ensued with almost 60,000 American dead soldiers and upwards of a million Vietnamese. This is just a small example in culture of the butterfly effect. In an article for the Wall Street Journal, George Weigel talks about the reasons for the Roman Emperor Constantine's conversion to Christianity in 312 AD. He says, what's shocking is that in just a few centuries, a ragtag band of nobodies from the edges of the empire, Nazareth and Galilee, would become such a dominant force that even the emperor himself would join them. Rodney Stark of Baylor University explains the historical sociology of this extraordinary phenomenon. He argues that Christianity modeled a nobler way of life than what was on offer elsewhere in the rather brief and brutal society of the day. In Christianity, women were respected as they weren't in classical culture and played a critical role in bringing men to the faith and attracting converts. In an age of plagues, the readiness of Christians to care for all the sick, not just their own, was a factor, as was the impressive witness of faith to countless martyrs. Christianity also grew from within because Christians had larger families, which was a byproduct of their faith's prohibition of abortion and infanticide. But it wasn't just the offer of a better life that was on display to the Romans that won the day. It had to do with what Weigel calls the Easter effect. He writes, there is no accounting for the rise of Christianity without weighing the revolutionary effect on those nobodies of what they called the resurrection. Their encounter with the one whom they embraced as the risen Lord whom they first knew as the itinerant Jewish rabbi of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, who died an agonizing and shameful death on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem. In his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, to just push this case even further, 
Tom Wright remarks that the first generation of Christians answered the question of why they were Christians with a straightforward answer. Because Jesus was raised from the dead. So you can see how this seemingly small event that only a handful of people in some Mediterranean backwater region of the empire had a large and lasting consequences that really changed the world. Constantine became a Christian because the empire itself was being won over to Christianity. The empire was being won over to Christianity because of how attractive Christians' lives were to everyday Romans. Christians had a massive outcoming, excuse me, Christians had a massive um, effect on Roman thinking because of the way they started to think differently about the world around them. Like the butterfly effect, the resurrection had an Easter effect. The seemingly small act of Jesus raising from, rising from the dead had world-changing consequences, and it was all because it changed the thinking of his first followers. And so their, their thinking changed in four ways I want us to look at this morning. The way they thought about time and history changed. The way they thought about resurrection changed. The way they thought about their responsibilities to the society and world around them changed. And the way they thought about worship and its temporal rhythms changed. So number one, the way they thought about time and history changed. Most of Jesus' disciples during his ministry shared the Jewish expectation about time and history. God would one day work something grand for his people Israel, liberating them from their oppressors, and bringing about a new age in which, as the prophet Isaiah had prophesied, the nations would all stream to the mountain of the Lord. So here is this expectation, this Jewish expectation before the time of Jesus, that one day at the end of history, God would act. He would put all things to right and reestablish Israel as the head of the nations and all of the nations would stream to the mountain of the Lord. That's a prophecy in Isaiah. But Easter reoriented that. What they thought would happen at the end of history came in the middle of history. God's kingdom had come not at the end of time, but in the middle of time, within time. And that changed for them both the texture and uh, the time of history. History continued, but those shaped by Easter became the people who knew how history was going to turn out. You can just imagine how that would change your view of yourself and the world around you, knowing how history is going to turn out. And Weigel writes, because of that, they could live differently. The Easter effect impelled them to bring a new standard of equality into the world and to embrace, embrace death as martyrs if necessary because they knew now that death did not have the final word in the human story. I don't know if you saw this this morning, but the news reported that 140 Christians were killed this morning in church bombings in Sri Lanka. 
These are not abstract ideas about the potential of safe Western Christians facing death with the knowledge that God controls history, including our souls and lives after death. For many Christians, then and now, this is real. This is, there is a real confidence that comes from the Easter effect because of the knowledge that God is controlling all of history. And he not only is controlling all of history, but demonstrated victory over the thing that we fear the most, and that's death. That's the Easter effect. The second thing that happened was the way they thought about resurrection changed. We might ask, what did people back then think about death and resurrection? For the ancient pagan world, the road to the underworld was one way. It ran in one direction. Once you were dead, you were dead. Death was all-powerful. You couldn't escape it. You couldn't reverse it. When you died, that was it. You went to the underworld. It was all-powerful. Once there, you never came back. And the pagans had no real vocabulary of resurrection. Now, philosophers like Plato, to try to get around this, came up with this idea that the body is the prison of the soul, and so death liberates you. Sounds like a nice idea, maybe a comforting idea. Perhaps if a loved one of yours has died, you may have heard someone at the ceremony say, well, now they're free. I just want to tell you, that's a platonic idea. It's not a biblical one. It's not a Christian idea, because death is never seen as a good thing in Scripture. Death is always an enemy. Death doesn't liberate. Death is an interruption into the way God made the world to be, the way God made human beings to be. Death is, we say it's natural, but as far as God's economy of existence is concerned, it's very unnatural. It was never meant to be. Now, the Jews, on the other hand, did not have much of a theology of resurrection, that is, until the Babylonian captivity. And so you see the prophets start to emerge right around the time of the Assyrian and Babylonian invasion, where they started to talk about Israel's national resurrection. Perhaps you remember the passage in Ezekiel 37, where God tells Ezekiel to look at this valley of dry bones... And speak to them, O son of man. And God promises that he will wrap these bones with flesh and breathe the breath of life back into their bodies. From Ezekiel's perspective, this is a prediction of Israel's corporate and national resurrection as a people. By the time you get to Daniel, Daniel is talking about the resurrection of the city of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. And all of it represents the national and ecclesial resurrection, as it were, of Israel corporately as a nation. But something happens about 200 B.C. All of this buzz and energy about Israel's national and religious resurrection is replaced with the hope of personal and individual resurrection from the dead. Now you might say, well, why? Why did they stop believing in the national resurrection? Well, because the, the Jews returned. They returned from Babylon. The city of Jerusalem was rebuilt. The temple was rebuilt. Ezra and Nehemiah, that's what those two books are all about. And so after that happens, this hope of resurrection becomes personal. And the Jews start hoping 
for personal resurrection from the dead after they die. And this is in the air of Jesus' early disciples and Jews, pious Jews, in the first century. There is a hope and expectation, not just of national resurrection, but the idea that when they die, they too would be raised from the dead. And we know it was not a consensus because the Pharisees and the Sadducees argued over the issue. Pharisees, well, we would say they were, you know, the conservatives in the bunch. They really believed it. They were like us. They believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees were doubtful, and one of the reasons why is because it was a theology that had emerged that was not entirely clear in the Hebrew Scriptures. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, they are confused as to what it looks like. They have absolutely no category for someone in the middle of history experiencing not just resuscitation, but resurrection. Say, well, what's the difference? Jairus' daughter and even Lazarus are resuscitated from the dead, but they don't experience true resurrection because they'll go on to live out their natural lives and die again. But a resurrection body is completely free of death, conquered past the grave with a new body and a new life, with an upgraded body. Again, Weigel writes, those who first experienced the Easter effect had an evolutionary leap in the human condition. A new way of being had been encountered in the manifestly human but utterly different life of the one they met as the risen Lord. That insight radically changed all those who embraced it. And so third, the way they thought about their responsibilities changed. You see this progression right? The way they think about time and history changes, which causes them to think differently about resurrection, and it also causes them to think about their own responsibilities. See, what had happened to Jesus was not just about their former teacher and friend, and this is the key to it all. This is really the key to Easter. What happened to Jesus was not just about him. It was about all of them. It was about all of you. It is about all of you. It is not just about the resurrection of their teacher. It is about all of their destinies, all of our destiny. His destiny was their destiny. See, it's only in the prism of the resurrection that the teaching of Jesus about how you should believe, how you should act, how you should treat your neighbors and your enemies, how you should behave in God's created world, it's only in the prism of the resurrection that any of that has any real resonance, right? Because if you think about it, you're taking advice from somebody who, if he just dies like everyone else, it's, that's all it is, is good advice. It's like someone telling you about financial success and they themselves are a total wreck financially. But if someone is giving you financial advice and you see their success, well, you'll listen, right? because you've seen that it's worked for them, and that's exactly the impact that Jesus' teaching has on their own idea of responsibility to the world around them, right? All of Jesus' teaching about loving your enemies, loving your neighbors, living self-sacrificially, walking obedient to God and his commands, all of those things all come together in a crystallizing way once Jesus is raised from the dead. Everything he taught came together after his resurrection. 
and it empowered their mission. So not only could they face opposition, scorn, and even death with confidence, they could offer to others the truth and the fellowship they had been given. They had to do that to be faithful to what they had experienced. And so Christian mission, our task and calling in the world is absolutely and utterly inconceivable without Easter. What it means to be a Christian, what it means to be empowered by God to be on mission in the world is given all of its strength in the resurrection. You know, Jesus comes along and before him, before him there's all these other messianic type teachers and they all have movements. And, and jo Josephus, the first century historian, talks about these different leaders, but when they die, the movements are done. The movements all just fizzle out. And so when Jesus dies, you can imagine that his disciples, because they don't really understand the way, they don't even understand his words about resurrection. You can imagine they're thinking, well, there went that. That was nice while it lasted. But when he rises from the dead, it's, it all comes back to life, right? The lights go off when he dies. When he comes back to life, the lights turn on, and they're not just on, they're in neon, baby. <laughs> you know, they're, they're bright, they're shining, they're in neon now. The lights have come back on in a powerful way. And so because of Easter, we're embraced as sons and daughters, and we are proclaiming a message to others that God wants to embrace them also as sons and daughters. We are proclaiming a message of covenant relationship with the one true God because Jesus rose from the dead, and it all makes sense. It's all real. And then fourthly and finally, the way they thought about worship and its temporal rhythms changed. For the Jews who were the first members of the Jesus movement, nothing was more sacrosanct than the Sabbath on Saturday, the last day of the week, the seventh day of rest and worship. Yet these first Christians, all Jews, quickly fixed Sunday as the Lord's Day because Easter had been on a Sunday, the first day of the week. Joseph Ratzinger says, the change in worship days is one of the most convincing proofs that something extraordinary happened at Easter, the discovery of the empty tomb and the encounter with the risen Lord. It changed the way they thought even about worship and and they're gathering together. This rising from the dead on the first day of the week galvanized their movement and even their own sense of worship and identity. So, you see, Easter isn't just a comforting story that if you believe in Jesus, you'll go to heaven when you die. That's kind of what Easter's been reduced to. Oh, Jesus rose from the dead. Oh, that's cool. That means like, when I die, I'll rise from the dead too? I'll go to heaven? Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll, tr I'll try to be excited about that. You know, in our culture nowadays, it, it's kind of ceased to be compelling as a standalone argument for the veracity of the gospel of Jesus. It's just not really that compelling anymore. It's true, 
But as a standalone argument, that is not what Easter is all about. Rather, Easter changes everything about what it means to be human. Changes how we see each other. It changes how we see our mission and task in the world, why we live, why we work, why we play, why we work hard, why we forgive other people. All of those things come together. They're brought together in the resurrection of Jesus because it points to the fact that this world has not been abandoned, but God entered into the middle of history. Easter changes what it means to be alive. We think about history differently because God acted in history to redeem us. We don't fear death even as martyrs like those Christians who died this morning in Sri Lanka because death doesn't have the last word. And we live with a deep sense of responsibility to the world and the environment because we're on mission as followers of the one who created this world and created all flesh. We have a responsibility. Long gone are the days when Christians stood back and said, it's all going to burn anyway. That's not what I see in the Easter story. And we celebrate the risen Lord, not just on Easter, but every single Sunday of the year, on the first day of the week, because Jesus, the risen one, is now Lord over heaven and earth. We're Easter people. We're Sunday people. We're people of the first day of the week. We are not enjoying grace after we've worked hard all week. We're starting the week with grace. We're starting the week with rest. This is the first day of the week, not Monday. We're starting the week in the comfort and the knowledge that death doesn't have the final say over us. And you go to work on the second day of the week after you've enjoyed this grace because we're Easter people. May we live as people of the resurrection. May you live as people of the resurrection. May you live as an Easter community. If you haven't experienced that resurrection life, let me personally invite you to trust in Jesus, the risen one, the Lord of salvation. Because only he has the power over death. And only he has the power to give abundant and eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for your son Jesus who was not just resuscitated from the dead like those who came before him, but experienced true resurrection with a new body, never to die again. And in his resurrection, we see our own humanity, our own calling to this world and each other, and our own pattern of worship as we celebrate the grace of the risen Lord on the first day of every week. Help us now to trust in you more deeply to place our confidence in you and not our own works with the knowledge, O oh God, that by trusting in your Son who conquered death and the grave, we too will have eternal life in the heavens and also abundant life here on earth. We pray these things and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.